Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 20th of September 2021 and this is episode 223. On today's Dispatches podcast, Giles Penman, a doctoral candidate at the University of Warwick, talks about his research into the use of Britannia's image during the Great War. Giles spoke to me over the interweb from his home in Birmingham. Giles, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yes, so uh, my name is Giles Penman and I'm a uh, second year PhD student at the uh, University of Warwick, uh, jointly supervised by the uh, Classics and History Departments. I I, I, uh, became uh, first interested in the First World War at school when I was 12. My my, my father, uh, who has always been interested in history and and a former member of the Royal Army Medical Corps, took me to uh, the battlefields of France and, and Belgium for the 90th anniversary commemorations in 2004-2005 and, and it was a very powerful and a moving experience for me at the time and, and as a result I became deeply interested in the history of the First World War and, uh, and, and that stayed with me ever since. So tell me about your research. And so my um, in my research I investigate the deployment of Roman and ancient Greek imagery on the uh, civil uh, cultural artefacts of the Great War. So these are uh, c- ceramics, uh, medals, and uh, posters and postcards, jigsaws, um, even. So a broad range of uh, material and culture objects that, that all depict uh, Roman and ancient Greek imagery, such as wreaths and palm branches, figures of Britannia, um, r- 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 Roman and Greek architecture, uh, so temples and, uh, and, and, and other structures. And, and so I, I investigate uh, why, why they're used to, uh, c- uh, why such ancient imagery is used to uh, commemorate and, and discuss every very 20th century conflict. It just doesn't uh, immediately make sense that uh, such ancient imagery would, would be of any relevance to the 20th century and, and its conflicts. There is actually a lot to be investigated. Um, and indeed, also, I look at then the public response to that. You know, how, how, do, how did, uh, not, not, just the, not just the educated elites, but the, the, the working classes, how did they respond to this use of imagery as well? Why is this subject important? Um, this, is, this is important because it, it's a mode of expression um, that, that is uh, quite unusual. Usual, and it tells us a lot about how the British government wished to depict the Great War, not not, not just uh, as a modern conflict, but one that has uh, great um, great bearing for Britain as a nation and its history. The the Greco-Roman imagery provide a, um, a, a a means a means of connecting to the past that few other few other images do, and so it, it creates a sense that the Great War is a is a much more important conflict than uh, a, a distant. Uh, conflict uh, overseas, but it, it has central importance for the British nation and its identity. So what's your methodology uh, to approach this? I, I first um, uh, look at uh, the, the uh, previous uh, scholarship that has been uh, written, ab- uh, written about this subject. Then I, I go to libraries and archives to try and find the, the original uh, documents which, which were produced when the, the objects were designed and manufactured. And uh, unfortunately, 
I've been able to find a, a great deal of, of, of secondary literature, uh, which has helped me with my research. But unfortunately, uh, I'm very dependent on the survival of, of original archival of, of archival uh, documents. And so often for a lot of the objects, those those documents don't survive. And so I, I, I have to um, use the previous scholarship to try and help me to interpret the objects. Um, and so uh, uh, the work of um, Anna, Anna Carden Coyne, uh, who has studied the use of classical imagery on war memorials, has been very helpful for me to articulate my own ideas about how classical imagery has been used on the uh, civil uh, cultural artefacts. So essentially you're looking at all manner of sort of everyday consumer items um, to actually the sort of decoration used on the death panel Dehenny, um, that was obviously issued to families of, of deceased soldiers. Uh, yes, yes, certainly. The, the, the objects really do have a, a very great, great range of both uh, materials and forms. So everything from uh, famous recruiting posters, such as Remember Scarborough and um, and uh, Women Wanted Urgently, and, and other very famous, prominent, pu- very public depictions uh, of the war, uh, but also then perhaps more more intimate uh, objects such as the, the death penalty, which were not um, publicly displayed outside the home, but formed very much part of um, the, the personal commemoration for the family. And together together with that, I would also put the mugs and the medals of Peace Day, which, uh, commem- which commemorated peace after the Great War, and indeed uh, other uh, ceramic items that, uh, that could be bought to commemorate the war, the uh, mugs and, and beakers that could be that would normally be placed in cupboards rather than publicly displayed. One of, one of the really interesting things from um, your research and some of the stuff that I've read on the Great War is the dominance of this sort of Greco-Roman ideal in terms of architecture, imagery, statues that seems to dominate um, British uh, visual culture, you know, especially in the high Victorian Edwardian periods. Why, why does Britain have this imagery? Why are people so interested in and, and use it as a cultural ref point? Greco-Roman imagery is so um, it's so prevalent in British in British society because it has such a very long history in the material culture of Britain um, in uh, coins and and in architecture. And so, uh, to cite one prominent example, the figure of uh, Britannia, the uh, personification of the British nation uh, of Roman origin, has been on the uh, been on low denomination British coins since uh, the reign of Charles II, and has appeared on, on every on, on the coins of every monarch since then. Uh, so that uh, so everyone would would have seen Greco-Roman image as part of their small change every day in their pocket. But beyond that, the uh, Greco-Roman uh, figures were used very uh, very prevalently as part of uh, neo Palladian architecture produced after the grand after the, the grand tours of, of elite gentlemen in the 17th and 18th centuries. And so mem- members of, of the public would um, would be walk, would walk past them every day. And so even if they couldn't read, they would be able to uh, become familiar with Greek and, and Roman uh, architecture and sculptures. And so as a result of this very deep inculcation of, of classical imagery in British visual culture, it was therefore the perfect medium through which to express ideas about the Great War. One thing that comes through uh, from, from a lot of the literature I've read, you know, accounts, is that um, Greek and Latin was a really dominant sort of educational medium. It was all, it was taught in public schools. Do you think that shaped why it was so dominant? It was sort of a, a language of the elite. I, 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 do, I do think 
Latin and Greek did, did, did shape part of its dominance, but I wouldn't say that it is because it was a, a necessarily a marker of elite culture. A, a scholarship uh, by Elizabeth Van Diver and uh, more recently uh, Henry Stead and uh, Edith Hall has demonstrated that Latin and Greek uh, and, and more broadly Roman and Greek literature and, and, and uh, Greco-Roman history were subjects that all sections of society were able to access. Uh, so the, the elites in, in their private schools, yes, certainly learned Latin and Greek and ancient history. And uh, certainly in grammar school, to a lesser extent, Latin and Greek were taught there. But more, more broadly, Latin and Greek came, and their literature, came to uh, the working classes through uh, condensations and translations and, um, uh, and, and other books, all produced in English, at the, uh, particularly at the, the turn of the uh, 20th century. But also, but also before that, there's a long history of, of auto-dictats, uh, so people teaching, choosing to teach themselves these subjects in, in communities across Britain. So in that way, it's quite clear that all sections of British society had at least some knowledge of, of Latin and Greek and uh, the history of the Greeks and the Romans, um, albeit varying by degrees. I wonder whether we could have a look at a detail of one of these sort of representations who sort of is so dominant, and that, that's Britannia, and you've touched on her um, a, a minute ago. I wonder whether you could start by telling us who or what Britannia was, what did she look like? Because obviously this podcast so makes a, a visual uh, medium quite difficult. And what did she represent to the average sort of person? Uh, yes, um, so Britannia um, was um, originally created by um, the Romans in, in the early early first century AD um, as the personification of the Roman province of Britannia, uh, Britain. And, and indeed, female personifications were, were very common uh, in, in, the, in the Roman world for, for towns and cities and, and provinces. Uh, so it was very much in keeping with uh, uh, the Roman visual aesthetic. But uh, Britannia um, is depicted wearing a crested helmet with um, a, um, a curious um, uh, breastplate and, and then uh, also wearing sandals. But in addition to um, to that, she'd also carry um, a, a sword and, and a shield. Um, uh, the trident is actually something that appears in, in later post, post-Renaissance uh, depictions of Britannia. Um, but um, as well as those very, very martial and very masculine um, elements of war, she also wears the stola and pallor. Uh, so that's a, a dress, um, the, the dress uh, stola, and then the pallor as a, a sort of uh, mantle covering, which were uh, trappings of uh, the uh, Roman matron. Um, so uh, she appears as a kind of hybrid masculine feminine figure. And uh, she becomes prominent in, in British, British visual culture from the Renaissance in, in both uh, printed books, but also, but also in, in coinage and uh, and and gains gains characteristics over uh, over time, particularly through the her depiction in the popular ma- uh, magazine Punch. Uh, where the um, where, where different um, illustrators uh, gave her characteristics as as mother of the nation, uh, chief mourner, uh, mi- military and political commander, but also uh, weeping uh, virgin and and uh, as a as an abused victim. So all these all, all this kaleidoscope of different characteristics centered around the one figure of of Britannia. So in that way, together with the architecture and the coinage, she becomes this this personification of the nation, the spirit representing the spirit of the nation. Do you think she would have equivalent in St George uh, in terms of sort of a, as a national figurehead? Uh, I think so, yes. She she, um, she she occupies that same legendary space that um, gains authority and influence through, um, th- through, through um, long, long historical use. 
And, and, and certainly that's something that we see being deployed unashamedly during the Great War. And the other thing that I was just wondering about is that she's obviously related to Britain. And does does she have a sort of a geographical limitation in, in her use? I mean, I'm thinking because I'm currently in, in Ireland. And would, would Britannia have had the same meaning to a, an educated Irishman or a working class Irishman or Irish person rather in, in sort of 1914 as it would do to somebody maybe from, from London or Halifax? Um, I think so. Uh, g- given the, the quite fr- political relationship between uh, Britain and Ireland at that time, I certainly think that Britannia would have represented unionism and Britain that that the Irish and, and Irish Republicans in particular w- would have found distasteful and, and, and troubling. So certainly she would have represented Britain abroad as well. So thinking about sort of Britannia as a sort of representation of Britain and the female representation of Britain, one question I was wondering was whether Britannia had any connection with Boudicca and Boudicca or Boadicea, for those who those those classical scholars, Boudicca was a um, um, warrior queen of the Iceni tribe, who I think levelled and destroyed um, Colchester around AD sixty. Is there any connection between her and and the mythical mythical person or image Britannia? Uh, yes, that, that that is a very interesting question, and, and certainly there is a, a definite visual connection between um, the the way in which um, Britannia is is presented. Um, Visually, but also in her in her characterization as as a, as a warrior. Your listeners can see in London the the uh, statue of of, of Bodicea in her chariot, and uh, that that very martial very martial imagery is um, something that that we also see with Britannia in the in the first one for um, recruiting posters. But unfortunately, there there hasn't been a very much scholarly work that I've come across that draws that connection together more more clearly uh, and articulates it. So certainly it's an avenue of of research should your uh, listeners wish to pursue that themselves. So turning to her use during the actual war and her sort of representation on various posters, what's the purpose Mm. of her use and how did did the authorities sort of deploy this? Okay, so um, Britannia um, was deployed by by illustrators to achieve uh, a number of functions um, that I found in my research. And so firstly, she she was deployed by, by illustrators to attempt to persuade Britons to change their social habits to aid the war effort. And so, for example, she appears in sketches advocating teetotalism for, for, for Christians, for Methodist Christians, but also for, for housewives to save bread amid amid fears of a bread short. But it's important to bear in mind there that despite the appearance um, and, the inten- and the intention of the illustrators, uh, reality can be quite different. And so whilst Britannia advocated teetotalism and, and, and saving bread, the, re- the reality was that the, the working classes through through war work were able to earn higher wages than they did before and 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 and, and therefore they were able to afford a, a better diet including more bread and so they didn't they didn't need to save bread because they were able to they were able to afford it and and indeed whilst Britons did drink less alcohol which was the intended result of Britannia's use in in that uh, in that sketch they did so not because of Britannia or any or any patriotic fervor or to to follow the king and his king's pledge for Tito during the war, but rather because of government regulation. Pubs had limited uh, opening hours. They, uh, 
um, so you, you so you couldn't just go into a pub anytime you wanted and drink. And even when you could, the gravity of beer, so the percentage of alcohol in beer, was actually reduced during wartime. So even if you could drink, you couldn't really drink as much as you did before. And then that those those two principally t- together with other other public pressure from politicians and religious groups. The Archbishop of Canterbury being a, a prominent uh, proponent of teetotalism during the war, um, as well as Lloyd George. That 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 constellation of of uh, regulation and pressure led to a reduction rather than Britannia. And was Britannia used in any sort of recruitment campaign from about 1914 to 1916? <laughs> um, she was, and interestingly, she appears to have been deployed by illustrators to encourage men and women into particular roles that, that helped to uh, define a certain conception of masculinity and femininity. And so Britannia advocates for men to undertake exclusively combatant service rather than non-combatant service such as work in the medical corps or, 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 or in supplies. And so that presents uh, an image um, that men that men should, should, should want to serve in combatant units rather than any, any other in order to remain loyal to their nation. Uh, but this, of course, is very different from the reality. M- m- men were needed in, in, in supplies and, and, in, and in medical care and other non-combatant service. And so the, the role of men during the war remained complex and not, and not nearly as uh, simple and unnuanced as that, uh, as that imagery would, would suggest. Similarly, for, for women, Britannia advocated that they enter uniform service, such as the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps or the Women's Royal Naval Service. And now, whilst, whilst many many women did and they were vaunted and praised as being very patriotic as a result women also did undertake non-uniformed roles and um, such as in factories and elsewhere and continued many of those non-uniformed roles from from the pre-war period uh, but just as in an expanded capacity but Britannia doesn't rep- doesn't uh, represent or endorse any any of that service so once once again Britannia presents a very unnuanced picture of what uh, women ought to be doing during the Great War to fulfil their patriotic duty to the nation. I've always thought that Britannia has a sort of a maritime connection because she's seen with the trident. And also <laughs> a tri- trident is, a, is the weapon that Neptune, Poseidon, the, the Roman and Greek god of sea has. And I've always assumed that, you know, she has this sort of um, connection to the Royal Navy. I don't know why I've got that. But is there any truth in that? Uh, I think I think there is. But I think it belongs very much to the um, the, the, the 19th, 19th century British Royal Navy that uh, that was said to rule the waves, and uh, when, when Britain had a, a glo- global uh, naval naval supremacy because of because of its uh, empire and, and its wide reach. Penultimate question is: Did Britannia, as an image, have any sort of usage outside the British Empire? For instance, did the Germans use it in propaganda? Did the French use it, or and was it associated with Britain by um, other other powers such as America? Um, I, I, ha- I have seen um, seen American posters that uh, from from the war that depict the representation of the the nation of the American nation together with with Britannia as a show of allied support so certainly um, certainly other nations used Britannia as well and I think the as I recall the French government also used uh, similar imagery with uh, Marianne the uh, the personification of the French nation so but but uh, I don't think uh, that uh, from my from what I've seen in my research that uh, Germany did um, but uh, but, but certainly it was an image associated with Britain and the British nation that could be readily deployed to speak to an allied connection of mutual support uh, and uh, and common goals in the Great War.
great war. My final question, Giles, is where can people learn more and when people learn more? For instance, when will you complete your study? Okay, um, that's a question that my, my parents often ask me, um, uh, m- mainly connected to getting a, a proper job. Uh, but I think I'll be uh, finishing in the next uh, couple of years and then hopefully uh, if I gain funding, produce, uh, produce the book uh, shortly after. But in, in terms of re- reading more, I think uh, I think uh, fr- fr- from uh, from published work, Anna Carden Coyne's book um, uh, on um, uh, masculine ma- mas- the masculine body and and the Great War, uh, reconstructing the body is the title of that work. And within within that within that work is a chapter about the uh, deployment of Greco-Roman imagery on war memorials. Giles, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.